You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Call back and ask you uh, to give Michael Emerling Cloud your attention and your involvement and participation. Um, Michael has been a wonderful contributor to the advocates over the last couple of years. I have enjoyed very, very much working with him. He has some tremendous insights on communicating our ideas and has helped me to deepen my knowledge and broaden my perspective on becoming a better communicator. He has become a friend and also a mentor to me. I have the good fortune of having several mentors in the room today, and I encourage you folks to find some mentors to help you improve your your communication skills, too. So without further ado, let me give you Michael Emerling Cloud. Thanks, Ryan. St. Francis of Assisi said, it is in giving that we receive, and um, sometimes it's hard to receive praise. Have you ever had anybody say something to you and you feel very flattered, and you just didn't know what to say? Well, thank you, thank you is what you say, but emotionally you're just not quite um, sure. Um, Carol Ann, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that I moved from being a tormentor to a mere mentor. No, no. I... Children start out as, 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 as question marks, and they end up as periods in other people's sentences. Why is the sky blue? Why do dogs walk three times in a circle before they lay down? Why does Aunt Matilda do that strange thing with her neck? Why does the minister drone on and on and on and on? Children are naturally curious. And yet our whole lives, we get it beat out of us. We get it crushed. We get it folded, spindled, mutilated. Our souls get run over by the steamrollers of society. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, society is a conspiracy against the individual. Amen. Maintaining your individuality, your, your humanity, is, is one of the most difficult, difficult things. And what I want to do is share with you some things that I've discovered, borrowed, begged, created, used, abused, confused, refused, gotten obtusive and abusive about. And that's some questions that might be the answer. See, questions are mental appetizers. They whet the soul's appetite for more. Explain to me how you feel about education. Get some curious. Do you feel respected when people ask you questions? Well, if they ask you with respect, you do. If they cross-examine you like Hamilton Berger used to do on the old Perry Mason show, you want to run for your life. If you feel like Mark Furman with Johnny Cochran in the stand, it's not good. Those aren't the kind of questions you want to be asking. Questions are mental appetizers. They start your curiosity juices flowing. You know, there's an old quote, it's an old southern quote that says, a hungry fox 
hunts best. And a curious mind learns the most. And yet, we have become so overfed intellectually, so know-it-all-ish all too often, that the curiosity has been satisfied. We stop asking questions. And it's a shame. I, I used to have my parents... You want to torment your parents, what you should do is grow up to be something they could never conceive of you being. I went to the United States Air Force Academy. I was appointed by Morris Udall. My father was a U-2 pilot, flew over Cuba during the missile crisis. He took photographs of those Russian missiles. President John F. Kennedy showed my father's photographs to the UN and told Nikita Khrushchev to take those damn things out or we'd come in and take them. My dad was a hero. He's decorated in the White House. And I couldn't even tell my friends because it was top secret. Couldn't even tell my friends. And the friends, some of my friends' dads were U-2 pilots and were part of that same project. There were about six of them. They were all decorated in the President Kennedy White House. I got appointed to the United States Air Force Academy by Morris K. Udall. His son and I knew each other in student government, but I got appointed because I earned it. I had to engage in a competitive uh, test. I had to do better academically, I had to do better athletically, and I finished first, and I was appointed to the Air Force Academy. I went to the Air Force Academy not realizing what I wanted in my life. Like a lot of us, going to our first year in college, we were majoring in confusion. I was majoring in stuckness, confusion, and what the hell am I doing here? And I was at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And it gets really lonely when the snow was coming down, like Dr. Zhivago kind of nights, and there's nobody there that really understands how lonely and how unsure of yourself and how scared you are as an 18-year-old boy. No, I wasn't a man. I was a boy when I was 18. A lot of us were. It takes more than age to make a man. It takes character. I didn't have any yet. And while I was there, somebody said, you know, you really ought to read uh, Golf's Speech and Atlas Shrugged. And I said, oh, no, I met some people who read Ayn Rand. They're assholes. <laughs> You've heard stories about functional illiterates. I, I read four books all during high school. I was very bright, but I, I was mildly dyslexic, and I have what's called attention deficit disorder, which means that I could get by with bees without doing anything other than zoning in and out during classes and doing mental stuff, never cracking a book. I go to the Air Force Academy. I, it finally gets desperate, and I figure, oh, what the hell could it hurt? And I started reading Galt's speech. I had a copy of Atlas Shrug, a book big enough to, to, to choke a toad. And I'm starting to read Galt's speech, and I don't know most of the words there. Epistemology. I thought that had something to do with urine samples. <laughs> man qua man, for all I knew, that was some kind of kinky sex. I didn't know what that stuff meant. I, there were all sorts of words there. Efficacy. I had never heard, never read in my life. I read the book with a dictionary next to me. And in a spiraling notebook, I'd copy the word out and look it up in the dictionary and worked my way through that damn speech. All of the damn speech. I had 19 pages of definitions of words I'd never heard. I finished the speech and then finished Atlas Shrugged without ever having begun it. Then I started it over, and I had to fill in another, like, 13 or 14 pages. And Rand was sort of a jump start for my brain. It was like the shutters came down. It wasn't that she was right. It was like she challenged everything I believe, and she did it in such a breathtaking way that all of the complacency, all of the, 
the, the staticness, all of the stuckness got jostled loose, like a car stuck in the road where you have to kind of bump it to get it out of that chuck hole, or out of the snow, or out of the mud. And I went, wow. And I got absolutely excited by books. And I started reading. I dropped out of the Air Force Academy, went to the University of Arizona, first Pima County Community College, to the University of Arizona, where I met George Smith, who wrote a book called Atheism, A Case Against God. George founded the 17th chapter of Society for Individual Liberty. I was one of the founding members. There were a number of us in the Tucson circle. Went to the University of Arizona for about a year, and I was bored because I'd read the textbook in a week after having read Rand. This stuff is just child's play. <laughs> and I was reading about a book every day. And I found the university was getting in the way of my education. So I dropped out. Of course, my parents realized that's the, the express route to hell. I took a job as a theater manager for a drive-in theater, the Apache Complex. Worked about four or five hours a night and spent the rest of my day getting the education I never got in school. Reading, 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 reading. Since that day, I've read 14,000 books cover to cover. And it's not as hard as it sounds. Don't be that impressed. It's been 24 years. And if you've got nothing else going on in your life, single, male, you can read lots of books and you're going to need to because it's going to get lonely. 1976, I ran for U.S. Congress as a libertarian. Ran against Morris Udall, the man who appointed me to the Air Force Academy. It's my way of saying thank you. <laughs> when it was over, Morris Udall offered me a job as a speechwriter. During the campaign, I met other people, said, hey, you write speeches? I heard you gave some lines to so-and-so, and I said, sure. Wrote some speeches for them. I wrote speeches off and on. I ghost-wrote a doctoral dissertation in political science. I've ghost-written six books. I'm one of the most widely quoted underground speechwriters in the country. I don't get credit for it. My clients do. They pay for it. They own it. You've seen some of my phrases quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Playboy, even Penthouse magazine. And the letters are not real. <laughs> Harper's, you could go on down the line. That's a very unlikely life. I've done a lot of very unusual things. I've dated a couple of rock stars. I lived with a woman who is a well-known national uh, media journalist. I've hung out with some really rich and famous people. Let me tell you something, two things. One, the wealth does not rub off, and two, neither does the fame. <laughs> However, it's a little bit of fun. But for my parents, that has got to seem like a very strange life. But it's probably no stranger than anybody else's. Marshall's lived a, Marshall's been on a journey his whole life. You know, talk about Odysseus finding his way home to his true heart. Marshall has done that, you know, going from IBM to working for the Libertarian Party in California to founding uh, Advocates for Self-Government to doing the, the separation of a school and state. The reality is that our lives are stranger than we'd planned them. My life hasn't turned out the way I expected. But it's been a serendipitous journey, and I've enjoyed it. But it drives my parents crazy sometimes. That's my job as a child is to keep my parents mentally active by driving them crazy. One of the things that's occurred because I've done these many things is I've tried to keep the curiosity alive. And not only am I a participant in curiosity, I'm a carrier. I try and make other people curious. That's what this is about. My mother asked me when I, when I started getting curious, and I asked her when she stopped. And my mother loved me enough to think about it and said, you know, you're right. I have gotten complacent. And she hasn't gotten complacent. She taught me to read as a child. I remember watching her read books 
hardback books in the home rather than television. I took my love of reading from my mother. I'll always be grateful for that legacy. The money, the memories, she taught me. She taught me without knowing. She taught me. Questions are what I learned from my family in different ways. And questions are what I learned from Ayn Rand. And all of these people get to be our teachers. Questions enable you to be my teacher and me to be yours. Questions enable me to be your teacher and you to be mine. We're all students. We're all teachers. And every time we question someone in a, in a sincere, decent way, in a way that, that's meant with honesty and, and no harm intended, I really want to know, people love to teach us. Have you been flattered or insulted when someone asks you to explain how you came to a point of view? It's kind of flattering, isn't it? If someone asks you to explain something to them, it's kind of flattering. They're showing you respect as someone who knows how to do something, as an expert, as a competent, one of the few. Questions enable us to use this. So let's talk a little bit about it. See, I view questions as a way of jump-starting curiosity. I like asking people questions. You want to annoy... Here's, here's one to torture your libertarian friends. Anybody have libertarian friends who are not here? All right, you got some libertarian friends at home? Okay, here's a question to go torture your libertarian friends. Write this down. Go to the libertarian friend that is becoming a particular pain in the bottom and say, could you please tell me three things you're totally neutral on? <laughs> I will guarantee you their mind will start fluttering. The smoke will come out of their ears. They'll look like Robbie the Robot missing some of that good old oil. <laughs> See, the reality is that sometimes questions are the answer. I fell in love with a woman a, a, a couple months ago, and, and I told her I loved her, and it was hard, because I've got a reputation. Well, i got a reputation. <laughs> and I got it the old-fashioned way. I really did all those things. And sometimes your past stands in the way of your future. And I didn't want it to because I love her. And uh, it was not responded. And maybe because of her own stuff, or maybe because of me, I don't know. But had I not asked her, I couldn't have lived with myself. Had I not told her how I felt, I couldn't have lived with myself. That's not courage, that's curiosity. I wonder if she could love me. Well, I didn't like the answer, but I liked the question. You know why? Because some of the times the answer is yes. Sometimes God answers your prayers and the answer is yes. But it's never yes if you don't ask. You know, the Bible is really right. Ask and it should be given. Seek and you shall find it. Knock and the door should be open. But if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And a very wise woman said that, Javier Hollander, the happy hooker. <laughs> if you don't ask, you don't get you know, Richard Feynman, who's a really brilliant physicist, I, man, I really deeply love, he's as weird as I am, except he had a Nobel Prize and was a lot smarter than me. A lot smarter than me. Of course, he's dead now, so I guess I have a chance to excel. <laughs> Feynman used to say, philosophers are tourists, scientists are explorers. Philosophers are tourists, scientists are explorers. I want to encourage you that as you go through life talking about politics... Be an explorer. Don't be a tourist. Don't just walk through. Get curious. Ask people, what do you think about this? 
Do you believe in, in equal pay for equal work? Something I'll tell you a little later. I went to a national organization for women rally, wearing a button. I feel wicked for wearing this. I know I shouldn't have done it. I know I'll feel bad about it later. Not. And the button said, unequal pay for unequal work. It was the ideological equivalent of PMS with an Uzi. Well, if you believe in equal pay for unequal, if you believe in equal pay for equal work, this is the same thing, unequal pay for unequal work. Why would anyone complain? And I just very, well, I don't understand. You believe in equal pay for equal work. Why would you be opposed to unequal pay for unequal work? Well, I, I remember the first explanation, get the bleep out of here. I mean, I, I said, should I write that down or do I, do I get an autograph statement there? I said, so that's your answer to it, right? That was just a way of sort of tweaking their possibilities. Questions can do this too. Now, after this weekend, you're going to find new questions that are going to occur to you to ask people about government, to ask people about liberty. Why? Questions make you curious, which leads to a new question. Every question we answer leads to a new question that needs a new answer. There was a study done by a guy named Chicks Mihaly and Gersels, I believe it was, called Creative Vision, 1974-76, where they studied people who were really good artists, and they found really good artists, as opposed to drones and hacks and people that turned out the kind of crap like dogs playing poker, the real artists, the real artists out there would see artistic problems where other artists wouldn't see problems. Part of being a good artist was the ability to create or spot new problems, to raise new questions, to get curious. It's an interesting phenomenon. That's also characteristic of the best computer programmers. It is also characteristic of the very best physicists and scientists. They see problems where other people don't see problems. We see questions where other people see complacency. And one of the fun things to do in life is raise questions that other people never thought of because then we give them an opportunity to explore what they really believe. And that's all I'm asking them to do. Can I ask you a question? Would you mind if I ask you all a question? Would that be all right with you if I asked you a question? If politics is a big poker game, and there's the big government advocates on, big government liberals on one side, big government conservatives on the other, and the big government collectivists on the other side, and we're playing poker, and it's an honest game, and they're not marked cards, do you feel like if we turned our hand over, our libertarian hand, and they turned over their hand and we played face off, would we win or would we lose? The facts are friendly to freedom. The facts are friendly to freedom. And I feel like the more I can get people to explore the freedom issues, the more I win. The more they ask about freedom, the more they answer for freedom. The more they ask of freedom, the more they answer for freedom. Because questions can be the answer. Now, there are certain enemies of curiosity, certain enemies of, question. we're all, uh, of questions. We're all brought up with them. First enemy is thinking you already know. Thinking you already know the answer stands in the way of getting a real answer. There's a story about the, the, the Zen master that has a philosopher come to his house, and the philosopher says, oh, I've read about this philosophy and that philosophy, and the Zen master saying, yeah, 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 yeah. He's pouring tea. Would you like some tea? Yeah, I would. Well, he pours it into his cup, and the, the philosopher's telling him about Descartes and Hegel and 
Haragal, and he's telling him about this person and that person, about T.D. Suzuki and Shoigun Suzuki and, and, and all these people he's read. And the Zen master listens and keeps pouring the tea that overflows the cup, that overflows the table, that spills on with shoes. The man looks at him and says, Man, are you stupid? The cup's full. There's no more room. And the master says, Ah, oh, yes, you too are full. You have to empty your cup to receive my tea. And I would hope the philosopher would take it as a teaching tale, not as an insult. It was meant to teach. It was not meant to harm. There's a parable of a wise man and a fool. One day a wise man and a fool are walking down a path in opposite directions. They run into each other. And they converse for an hour. And then they part and they continue on their ways. After the encounter has occurred... Who has learned the most, the wise man or the fool? Most people, unlibertarians, answer the fool because he has so much to learn. The wise man has so much to teach him. But these people forget the fool is a fool because he cannot profit from anything. And the wise man is wise because he can profit from everything. Part of our task as human beings, as as, as, as spiritual beings, as, as social beings, as individuals, is to learn to profit from all of these encounters, to turn it all to our learning and our own growth. It's like Obi-Wan Kenobi said before Darth Vader struck him down, I'll rise up stronger than you can imagine. So too shall I. The third problem that we have is that we think we know enough. I know a lot of people that have quit their reading. They stopped reading books when they got out of college. They put the books on the shelf and the diploma on the wall. I know lots of people like that. I've done my reading. I read a little bit in a yachting magazine, a little bit in a, this magazine, a little bit of that, but I've done my reading. I've done my thinking. And they live off old thought the way a bear lives off old fat, hibernating, waiting for the spring. Well, I'm the wake-up call. <laughs> and it's time for us to look again. Do you know what they call graduation at school? It's called commencement. Commencement means beginning, not ending. That's when you take off the government blinders, you take off the training wheels, and you embark upon the pleasures and the payoff of a path of lifelong learning, free learning, self-directed learning, your own learning, where every book can be your teacher, every friend can be your mentor, every encounter can be an education, life can be a classroom, and we're all in session always. You know, if learning feels like a burden, if your learning feels like a burden, every time you pick up a book, you're going, oh, God, I've got to read another book on economics. I read Hayek last week, and I've got to read Bombaric this week, and I've got to read Menger next week. If your learning feels like a burden, it's because the government-run public schools are teaching disabled they have damaged you. They have taught you that teaching is terrible, that learning is painful. It's not. Learning is joyous. Learning is exciting. Learning is satisfying. Learning is the most fun you can have with your clothes on. Of course, you can learn a little bit with your clothes off, too, I might point out. Now, we had people who also taught us, not only did our teachers stop uh, uh, doing that, but we had our parents. Parents didn't want us to ask so many questions because we were annoying. They didn't know why the sky was blue. They're pretty average people, most of our parents. 
They're not bad people, they're just average. They hadn't, they hadn't kept reading after school. They didn't know why the dog walked three times. They didn't know why the water swirled this way in the toilet here and that way in, in Australia. I, I don't either, but I'm sure there's a good reason. What? Oh, okay. I'm perfectly in agreement with that. Whatever, it's, it's somewhere down the line, I'll learn about that. Now, why can't I stay up late? Now, what happened was our parents, finally, after getting asked a million questions by us kids, said, shut up. Just leave me alone. Go to your room. You'll learn when you grow up. They never, I, I'm grown up now. I called and said, okay, tell me now. <laughs> I like doing that. Or your parents say, someday you'll thank me for this. I called them back, thanked them. Thank you, Dad, for beating the shit out of me that day. I'm a much better man for it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And he says, you're having a bad day, aren't you? You thought you'd get even. And I said, no, I thought you might be having a, a tedious day and might need a little bit of irritating. And he says, no, talk to your mother. <laughs> See, the truth is, they didn't know the answer to a lot of the stuff. They were pretty average people, and very often... Rather than admit they don't know, which to most people is humiliating, they, they feel humiliated. A lot of people, if they don't know the answer, rather than admit it, they, they dissed us. They told us, shut up. They said, don't ask so many questions. Don't be nosy. You'll find out when you grow up. It's impolite to ask those kind of questions. I always like that because I like impolite questions. I mean, impolite questions are the most interesting. They give you really interesting answers. I like the people that ask the questions that nobody asks. Johnny Cochran, uh, some people think you were toting to African-American America uh, with all of your crap about uh, Mark Furman being like a Nazi. Some people think you're a real pond scum. How do you feel about that? I mean, I'd like to ask that question. Somebody needs to ask it. He needs to look in the mirror and ask it. And I mean that with respect. Now, or, or one you might have heard in church. It's sinful to doubt. Remember the story of the Doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas was the worst. How dare you ask? It's wicked to ask questions. Just have faith. There are some churches that do that. Well, I have a response to those kinds of religious leaders and those kinds of parents that I think that we need to admit. A little humility, acknowledging, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure. Let's go check in the library. There's nothing wrong with admitting that we don't know everything. I don't know everything. No one in this room knows everything. I don't know one-tenth of one percent about everything. And admitting that is, is, is not humility, it's honesty. We've been battered, we've been bruised, we've been bloodied and beaten, and we stopped asking questions. We're like battered children. We're afraid to ask questions. Can I tell you the truth? Everybody else that you know is too. They went to the same schools we did. They got a beaten out of them. They're afraid to ask the questions. And so we have to take the lead, set an example. Be responsible adults and teach it. My answer to these institutions, these parents, regarding belief or faith, any of that that can't stand up to questions doesn't deserve respect. I've never met a religious leader who wouldn't talk and explain their faith. And if they didn't have answers, they might say, this is a problem for our faith. And there's nothing wrong with admitting that. When someone says, but libertarians don't have a perfect answer to this, my response is, I never promised you perfection. Libertarianism isn't perfect under all circumstances at all time for all people. Does that surprise you? What, your parents didn't tell you there's no Santa yet? Now, come on. Is it that disappointing? The truth is that those things are difficult for us to admit. They're difficult for us to do. And as a consequence, we don't ask the questions. So let's talk a little bit about the kinds of questions we can ask 
that will be very valuable in communicating libertarian ideas. Because, see, the purpose of asking questions is to get the conversation started. It's like a jump start for the soul. It's a way of starting up ideas. Now, there's a quote in a book called Gravity's Rainbow. Has anybody here actually read Gravity's Rainbow from beginning to end? I have. What a... You, you have the same... Tim Leary, I'm in a conversation with Tim Leary, and Tim says, Michael, you really got to have blah, 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 blah. I said, all right, I'll read it. If Tim Leary says it's good, how much drugs could he have taken? <laughs> I'm reading the book, and I'm figuring... You ever start reading something, you go, it's got to get better, like you go to a movie, it's got to get better, it's got to get better, it's got to get better, and the credits roll over, it's got to... Maybe if I watch it again, it'll get better. And I read from beginning to end, and for the life of me, it never got better. <laughs> I think I think you're absolutely right. I, I I I was just absolutely befuddled. But there was one line in the book that was a brilliant line, and he says, "If they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about the answers." Write that down. That's a really good quote. If they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about the answers. And I thought, wow. I mean, that was. If he would have just given me the page number, I could have skipped the rest of the crap and just cut it out. You ever want to do that? It's like the little boy going to his, his mom and saying, Mom, where do babies come from? And the mother says, ask your father. And he says, I don't want to know that much about it. <laughs> or my theory that Moses was in the wilderness 40 years because he wouldn't stop and ask for directions. It's a guy thing. A woman would have had us out in 15 minutes. We'd own the Gaza Strip. It would have been cute. But that's my theory. Now, you can talk to your minister about that on Sunday. I don't, I don't want to hear those stories now. If they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about your answers. I'll give you a few examples. Yes, but what about the poor? You ever hear that? But what about the poor? Well, the conservative solution is to burn the poor. Or, or there's the callous conservative position, let them starve on the street. And the libertarian says, ah, the streets would be privately owned. We'd never find them there. <laughs> what about people on Social Security? Wrong question. Doesn't society have the right to ask us to help with education? Or health care? Or the indigent? Or the aged? or people who can't care for themselves, or people who play by the book and follow the rules and get left behind. Doesn't society have a right to ask us to help? If they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about the answers. Now, let's talk about some of the right questions. Because the right questions are the ones that will get them to simply reconsider the question. I don't care whether they come up as libertarians. If I can get them to ask, simply question their beliefs. Ayn Rand said, examine your premises. I say, question your assumptions. Question your cherished convictions. And I mean, I will too. I can't ask somebody to show me theirs if I won't show them mine. I can't ask them to examine theirs if I won't examine mine. How can I ask them to grapple with those dark issues that we all have in our hearts and our souls if I won't deal with mine? I can't ask them to do what I won't do. I can't ask them to follow where I won't lead. I can't ask them to be what I haven't been. We have tried to teach libertarian answers 
and we have failed. It is time to teach libertarian questions and succeed. It is time to teach libertarian questions and succeed. And I'm going to show you some fun stuff to do with your minister on Sunday. I'm going to give you some really interesting stuff to blow your mom's mind because she needs it blown. Tim Leary is out of drugs. The fax machine ain't working in heaven. And I got news for you. It's time for a wake-up call. Here's what we're going to try. What are libertarians really all about? What, I mean, what are self-governors? I mean, what's it about? I mean, I love it when people say, what's a libertarian? I say about $1.95 a pound. <laughs> that gets them off the track and they go, say what? I say, well, statists are three for one at garage sales. <laughs> but they're a subsidized product and subject to foreign import laws. <laughs> a little confusion can sow a lot of thinking. You ever notice how people's mouths are on automatic pilot? Have you ever done that where you think you're going to go somewhere, your brain goes, whoop, and your mouth keeps going, well, a lot of us do that in conversations. So I think confusion's a very wholesome thing to give them. So ever so often, I give them a confusion, stuff like that, and you can see them coming awake, and it's like, what? Now I've got their attention. I go, now let's talk. Now I've got your full attention. Now it's time for me to reach inside your mind and go, booga, 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 because that's my job. Now, I say, well, look, somebody asked me, I say, what, what are libertarians? I say, libertarians believe in liberty, individual liberty and self-responsibility. We believe in self-governing individuals. We take seriously what the Declaration of Independence said. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That when they act in violation of these rights, we have the right to alter or abolish them. I look them in the eye and I say, I signed on to the original contract with America. The one that people pledge their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honors with. Would you have signed it in 1776? I would. They didn't say, hi, if you don't like this contract with America, you can vote us out in two years. They said, you can burn our homes, you can take what we have, you can kill us. That is a contract with a heavy penalty clause. <laughs> that is a contract with teeth, and that is a contract with something at stake. Everything they are, they risk everything they are for their beliefs. That's what a libertarian is. I'm willing to roll the dice one time, betting everything I have, everything I am, on freedom. Because I know they're going to come up seven. We believe in individual choice, individual responsibility, individual consent, individual dissent. The individual's right to say yes, the individual's right to say no. The individual's right to join, the individual's right to not join. The individual's right to do business or not do business, to offer himself for service or not offer himself, to sell his goods or not sell his goods. Individual choice, individual freedom, self-responsibility. 
Those are the twin sides of the gold coin we call liberty. Every choice, every decision, and every responsibility is individual. That is the defining nature of this. Is that if this whole room votes that we shall do something and Marshall Fritz says no, Marshall can go his own way. If this whole room says no and Carol Ann Rand says yes, we'll probably go her way. <laughs> because she's got the key to the room. But normally we'd go our own way. That is what a libertarian is all about. So I ask, how can we get people to think like a libertarian? How can I teach them to think like a libertarian? How can I teach Esperanto for a reason? How can I teach them libertarianism as a second language? How can I make them bilingual? Statist? Freedom. How can I teach them English? How can I teach them libertarian as a second language? Ladies and gentlemen, friends, neighbors, troublemakers, irritants, lovers, friends, Taskmasters, taskmistresses, and I love those taskmistresses. <laughs> One nine hundred severe woman, <laughs> and even some Gen Xers. Arc to ask libertarian questions. Here's what we need to do, and here's what we're going to practice a little bit after I get done doing my rock and roll, troublemaking, irritating, annoying. I'm the grain of sand that irritates the oyster that causes the pearl stuff. And we're not talking pearl jam, we're talking real pearls. Questions must focus on who decides. Please write this down. Our questions about politics must focus on who decides, who chooses, who is responsible. Most libertarians want to talk about freedom. I don't. Mm -mm, I want to talk about responsibility. I want to talk about accountability. I believe in those things. I live those things. When I screw up, you know who cleans it up? Me. And when you do, you know who does? You. And anybody that wants to help you. That's the way life is. I believe in individual compassion, individual choice. We have to ask, we, all of our questions have to focus on who gets to decide. Who has the right to decide for you? Who has the right to choose for you? Who has the right to be responsible for you? The individual. That is the fundamental difference that separates us from the conservatives from the liberals, from the collectivists, is individual choice, individual decision, individual responsibility. Now, I like asking questions like this, and see if this doesn't jiggle your memory a little. I need a volunteer. You, come up here, please. Hi, Michael, you're? John. Pleasure to meet you. I want you to pretend for a second your status. Lower your IQ about 15 points. Okay. <laughs> Lower your moral standards completely. <laughs> if you're a status, and I were to ask you this question, say you aren't a status, say you're the guy next door. Let's say I tried this on you. John, could I ask you a question? Sure. Now notice I got permission to ask John a question. John has just made an agreement with me. Isn't that nice of John? Oh, good, we've got it. Thank you. I can talk loud. All right, let's, let's try that. We'll try it again. Mm -hmm. All right. John, lower your IQ 20 points. Lower your moral standards below human decency. Pretend you're an average person. Oh, I'm teasing. Most average people are pretty decent. The, the only average people that aren't decent are average status. And we hope to make them an endangered species. John, could I ask you a question? Sure. 
what I've done is I've gotten permission to ask him a question. He's made an agreement to engage in a game with me. And the game is, I ask the question, he answers it, and we have a conversation. If I just ask the question, he can walk away from it. He can say, yo mama. But if he's agreed, he's playing my game. That's a very good game to play. Start with an agreement. Would you mind if I ask you a question? No, that's fine. Now he's in. I got him. I bear trapped him. If a person engages in risky behavior, if a person goes out and uses drugs or wants to ride a motorcycle without a helmet, who should pay for his insurance? Him or somebody else? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Did you notice how he stopped and thought? Now, was the answer obvious immediately? No. The answer was not obvious immediately. That's what I needed. Thank you, John. Everybody give me a hand. What have I just asked him? I've asked him an individual accountability question, individual responsibility. If your neighbor wants to go out and use drugs and get drunk and do things that are self-damaging, who should pay the consequences for his behavior? The person who made the decisions, him, or other people in your neighborhood? Now notice the way I ask him. If he chooses to do X, who is accountable for the consequences, him or someone else? Now, what have I done? I've introduced the premise, one, individual choice, two, individual responsibility. And we know they're the cause of the consequences. Now, if a person acts self-destructively, set question number two, if a person acts self-destructively, who should be liable for his safety, his health, or his medical bills? The person engaging in the behavior or someone else? If you want to swap needles while using hard drugs, who should be accountable for your medical condition, you or someone other than you? Now, the easiest way to ask them is to ask them about themselves or ask them about a neighbor. If there's someone down the street who doesn't take into consideration his health and he does this and this and this, who should be accountable for paying the way? Now, I introduced the concept of individual there. Then I asked the person, who's responsible for your behavior, you or someone else? What do you think most people would answer if I ask them? Actually, the truth is, most people would say I am. Almost everybody, and if you want to try it, here's something I'd like you to do over the weekend. Tell people you, you went to this workshop with this nutty guy up front, looked like a dyslexic chicken on LSD, looked like Mick Jagger if you used smart drugs. And, 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 and he gave me a weird question. I was wondering whether you could help me. Could you help me? And I do this to waitresses. People that go to lunch with me get embarrassed all the time. It's good. It gives them a chance to grow and develop self-esteem and learn how not to care. Anyway, <laughs> you go ask the person, say, could I ask you a question? Who, who's responsible for your, your behavior, you or somebody else? If you ask somebody that, 99% say, I am. Now, that's a libertarian position. That is a libertarian conclusion. That is a self-governor's conclusion. Who governs? What's beneath this hat? I do. It ain't easy, is it? Says so. I read it on a cap. I know it's true. I believe everything I read on bumper stickers. I'd rather be sailing. <laughs> now, who's responsible for your behavior? You or someone else? Ask that of a person. Let me tell you a rule. I taught it to Harry Brown, and Harry's been using it. I, I, I laugh because I, I love it when someone likes something I do, and they, they run with it. All politics is personal. 
It's a line I've used since like 19... Marshall may have been at the first talk I gave on it, Politics is Personal, out in California, for all I remember. So at one of the state conventions, I think it was Advocates had something going on that weekend, too. I said, you know, politics is personal. What happens to you in the marketplace when you can't get a drug because the FDA keeps you from getting it and your child dies? That's personal. When they have a war you didn't vote on and they draft your child to go to some country you can't pronounce the name of and die for a reason you can't fathom, it's personal. Politics is personal. When they run your business out of business with regulations and red tape and corrupt governing, when you're trying to support your kids putting in 80 hours a week and you don't have enough time to go to your girls' play or your son's softball game, it's personal. All politics is personal. The consequences of political policies is personal. What I like to do with the responsibility questions is keep them personal. If you keep people, most people live their private lives in a pretty libertarian fashion, with the exception of the, the, multi, the way deadbeats, the psychopaths, the career criminals, um, uh, career politicians. Ah, but I repeat myself. <laughs> so I ask people, who's responsible for your behavior, you or someone else? Then I ask them the other question. Now, what I'm doing is making it more particular. Well, who's responsible for your finding a job or earning a living, you or someone else? Now, of course, people that have jobs answer that correctly. People that don't have jobs say, well, there must be someone that owes me a job somewhere. Who's responsible for your education? Who's responsible for your decisions, you or someone else? Now, you don't ask who's responsible for your decisions and put the question mark there. What's the second? Notice I made it personal, I made it individual. We don't talk about society. Society ain't nothing but this individual, this individual, this individual, this individual, this individual, this, this, and this. And a society that doesn't understand it isn't a society, it is a mob. And mobs do two things. They rape helpless women, they hang and lynch helpless minorities. That's what they do. A mob is a creature without a soul, a vampire without a heart, a zombie with nothing to feed that emptiness. But there's an interesting corollary to that. I've asked some questions about duties, responsibilities for their life. Well, if you pay the price for your failures, if you're responsible for your failures, shouldn't you enjoy the rewards of your success? I mean, if you have to clean up your messes, shouldn't you be able to en enjoy and appreciate and spend the money you earn? Who should decide who spends the money you earn? You or someone else? Now, now, I've talked the, the hard, the tough love, the libertarian tough love first. Who's accountable if you do dopey things? Then I move to the, the libertarian, now I'm, I'm done with the carrot, I'm done with the stick, now I give them the carrot. And it's a really good carrot. Well, if you're responsible when you make mistakes, who gets to harvest when you bring in a good crop? Who gets to reap the rewards when you produce them? You or someone else? Who should decide how to spend the money you earn, you or someone else? Try that on anybody here this weekend you want. Pick any bell captain. Pick any waiter. Pick anyone over the weekend and say, I got this weird guy down the hall, I don't know what he's doing here. I think he's just out on the work release program. But he asked me this question. He said, I'm curious. Who should decide how you spend the money you earn, you or someone other than you? If they're married, they'll say my wife. But everybody else will answer it right. Or, or what is it, the two lions in heaven? All the men who are henpecked stand on that side.
says, St. Peter, and those of you who aren't, stand on this side. This whole group moves to this side. One guy's standing over there, and St. Peter walks up and says, whoa, what are you doing here? My wife told me. <laughs> that is so chauvinistic. I would never say anything like that. But I've had friends that passed on the story, so I thought, just for your consideration. Okay, now, when you earn money, who should have, who has the right to decide where it goes? You or someone else? When you earn money, who should decide which charity it goes to? You or someone else? When you earn money, who should decide which cause it goes to? You or someone else? That's the point. Who's a better judge of the best way to spend the money you work so hard on? You or someone else? I put in phrases like you work so hard on because they're remembering that 60-hour week. You know why they're working 60 hours? 46 cents out of every dollar. is taxed by the government at all levels. You're working twice as many hours to support your family because government is the black hole of thuggery. I think the best thing we could do, I, I think Jesse Jackson hasn't gone far enough, this idea of turning Washington, D.C. into a 51st state, I think we ought to uh, declare it a nation and cut off diplomatic relations. <laughs> And as, as Harry Brown said in a recent fundraising letter, he says, uh, he says uh, you know, Pat Buchanan's talking about a 1,500-mile uh, ditch between the United States and Mexico. He says, we could, die, we, could, we could dig a 20-mile ditch between the real America and Washington, D.C. He says, I'm pretty sure we could have that patrolled by volunteers and improve everybody's standard of living. You know, maybe it'd be like that escape from New York where all the criminals, you know, went there. The criminals are lobbyists, but I repeat myself. Now... What I've done is I keep asking the person, who should decide, you or someone else? Who's best able to decide? Who has the right to decide? When you earn money, who has the right to decide where it goes, you or someone else? And most people immediately answer correctly. It's only when someone talks at politics they forget their principles. That's why we have to ask particular questions, specific questions. I like it when politicians go, well, doesn't society have a right to ask of its members? Excuse me a second, are you talking about the government or society? And are they asking or are they telling? And if, if I don't answer right, do they shoot me? <laughs> or steal my money? Or put a tax lien on my home? Or asset forfeit my property? I just want to be clear whether we're talking about seduction or rape. And I mean that in a respectful kind of guy way. You can move from there to asking people libertarian questions regarding the amount of government that they feel comfortable with. You know, I don't know whether you know, but Harry Brown has come out for a flat tax. Zero. <laughs> He's not for it because it's flat. He's for it because it's zero. <laughs> now, try this. Ask individuals. It's very important that we ask them one-on-one. -on -one. Do you believe your taxes are way too low? Just right or way too high? I, I, write the question down. I'm not kidding you. You go ask anybody in this hotel, and anybody that wants to watch me go harass the help. Come on. Because I, no, I ask it in a real nice way. I don't bother anybody. I, just, I ask them. And they look around like it's a trick question. <laughs> Are you nuts? Are you nuts? You know, it's way too high. Are your taxes way too low, just right, or way too high? Is government... Way too small, just right, or way too big? Do you know 74% all answer taxes are way too high, government's way too big? 
We have to make it personal. We have to let them realize that it's their decision, it's their money, and that it's an individual issue, not a group issue. If government rests on the consent of the governed, when I stop consenting, will they stop governing? <laughs> oh, it's a libertarian kind of question. Now, would you rather have more government involvement in your life and business and more government control over your life and business or less? Now, what am I asking them? I'm asking them to make a value judgment. Would you rather have more of this or less of this? You know what people consistently answer? Less. Now, does everybody know what a Philadelphia lawyer is? Philadelphia lawyer is someone that asks you a question and answers his own question. You know what your problem is? I'll tell you what your problem is. Your problem is bad, 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 bad. When we ask a question, the hard part for libertarians is the second step. Shut up. Let them answer. Give them some air. Do you believe government is way too small, just right, or way too big? I'll tell you, it's way too big. That's not asking, that's answering. We want to teach them to answer as a libertarian, to ask as a libertarian, so they might become a libertarian. We want to teach them liberty as a second language. Now, so would you rather have more government involvement and control over your life and business, or less? I'm just curious. Would you rather have more government involvement and control over your church, or less? I like what Barry Goldwater said to the religious right. He said, I'll make you a deal. I'll keep government out of your church if you keep your church out of government. I kind of like that idea. And if they wouldn't tax the church or the people in the church, I'd like it even better. Try this. Now we moved from personal questions to the impact on you. I'm going to move to the government programs itself. All right. First part, I'm asking them to notice who makes the decision. Who absorbs the consequences. Who decides who's responsible? The second, I ask them to judge. Is it too big, too little? Is it too much government, too little? Try this in high schools. Flip it on its head. If, you want, if you're talking to high schools, would you rather be able to make more decisions over your own life, or would you rather that more decisions be made by your mom, your dad, your teachers, and everybody else? <laughs> oh, man, it's great. At that point, they're ready to lynch the teacher, you know, and, and, and give you all their lunch money. I like it. You can turn it around on that. But the next area in which we can do it is, here's another libertarian set of questions to do it. Does, does this government program make people more responsible or more irresponsible? Now, I like it because government programs are not neutral. It's not either they work or don't work. Sometimes they work in just the opposite way. They don't, it's not that they don't just cure the problem, they make it worse. And if you ask people that and they think about it, it's amazing what their answer is. Do you think government welfare to single mothers who are 13 and 14 year old makes them more responsible and more likely to become self-supporting or less? Oh man, to ask the questions, to answer it. And they answer it the right way. But you can't give them the answer, you have to give them the question. You know the hardest part is biting your tongue while they're chewing on the answer. Because they know the right answer and what they're doing, they're not just thinking of the yes-no part of the answer. What they're beginning to do is they're analyzing, saying, oh, they're starting to connect it. They're thinking. New, new dendrites are growing in their brain. New synapses are firing up. Scotty, give me more power. I'm giving her all I've got. The fact is, they're starting to make new connections right after you've asked the question. I remember when I got a woman to quit being a welfare administrator. Honest to God, did it. I mean, it was an amazing thing. 
Because I, I, I ran into her at lunch one day. She was a friend of a woman I was dating, and it was one of those things where I said, by the way, I'm, I'm curious. I know you're very concerned about helping people who are poor and making sure that no one starves and caring for people. What I was doing there is, is expressing concern for her concern. But just to clarify for my own thinking, how does government welfare enable people to become self-supporting? And then I said, could you think about that? I always touch them after I ask a question like that because it's called anchoring and it does weird things to them, but it makes them think about it. And I walked off. I ran into her in a mall like a year later and she said, oh, by the way, just her arm. You don't touch her all over. This is, <laughs> this is not ba Bob Packwood persuasion. This is Michael Cloud, Bunky. What happened is I ran into a mall like a year later and says, oh, by the way, I thought about it and realized that government welfare made people more dependent, not less. And so I quit my job. I said, hey, that's terrific. What do you do now? She says, oh, I got a transfer. Now I work in the DMV. <laughs> so now there are people in line cursing me. What are you going to do? Now, does a, this government program make people more responsible? Look, put it, fill it in. Does this government welfare program, does this government BATF program, does this government drug prohibition program, does this government, and simply put in the particular program that you want them to analyze, make people more responsible or more irresponsible? And those are the contraries. You know how people sometimes blame us for license? Oh, you people want people to drink drugs, play rock and roll, have sex all day? Right? That's what you people are all about. There's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, and child pornography, or kitty porn, you know, you know. You know, or the internet, this kind of stuff. But the, the, reality, the reality is that what they're talking about is license, not liberty. What they're talking about is people acting irresponsibly and someone else paying the bill. Eat, drink, and be merry, and someone else pays your bar bill. Eat, drink, and become an alcoholic, and someone else pays for your detox program. Liberty means responsibility. Individual liberty means individual responsibility. So, I ask, does this program encourage or discourage people from being self-supporting? Now, notice I put the words in there, responsible, irresponsible, self-supporting. Does this program encourage or discourage people from becoming self-supporting? Now, when they answer it, you know what I ask them? I like looking at them and saying, do you think that's good? <laughs> Drives them nuts. Because what they do is they start, th I'm, I'm not trying to be rude about it. It's not a yes or no question. I want them to think about it. I want them to start talking out loud. Because if they start discussing what the system is doing to poor people, Look, I'm probably one of the few libertarians that doesn't care about them taking my tax dollar. That's not the big deal. So they take 100, so they take 50, so they take 5,000. That doesn't matter to me near as much as what they're doing to the people in the system. They're growing a whole class of criminals. They're growing a whole group of people who believe the world owes them a living. They're creating a society with drive-by shootings, murders, children uh, having children, people getting diplomas they can't read. They are creating a society in which it's dangerous for you and me to live our lives. It ain't just the money. They've made our world a more dangerous, uncivil place. That's the thing that scares me. It ain't just the money. If they would l steal the money and then leave me alone and not follow me around and not send their victims to go shoot people I love or rape people I care about or, or be child molesters that go through the system eight or ten times and get out and do it to people like Polly Class, I wouldn't mind if, 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 they would, if they would only take the money. But they do all those other things, and that's the evil and the tragedy. Now, I know I'm going to read about it in some libertarian magazine. Michael thinks it's okay to steal money. <laughs> I don't. I just think that's the least bad part of it. What's bad is the kind of people it grows. Now, 
So I ask, does the program encourage or discourage self-supporting? I put the word self-supporting because most people know it's good. Encourage or discourage responsibility, personal responsibility. Does it make people more responsible or more irresponsible? Notice I'm getting away from the freedom part and I'm getting down to who reaps what you sow? Who cleans up the mess you make? I have acquaintances that want to talk about the right of bikers to ride around without helmets. I say, fine. I got no problem as long as you're willing to insure the loss and you become a quadriplegic. You don't tax everybody for the rest of your bleeping life because you want to be a moron. That's license, not liberty. Being willing to impose the costs of your irresponsibility on others. Now, that's a question you want to ask. Do people have a right to impose the consequences of their irresponsibility on their neighbors, their friends, and people in their church, yes or no? Not can people help them. When people make mistakes, I believe in redemption. People can make mistakes, and I'm willing to give a, a hand up to anybody. I'm very unlibertarian. You might know. Some people here in the room know how unlibertarian I am. 10% of my income is tithed. I give 10% of every dollar I earn to a literacy program in Las Vegas, Nevada that is administered by a church in North Las Vegas, an African-American section. Do you know why I give it? Because ignorance is the worst form of slavery. And if you can't read, everybody owns your ass. I don't want a society of illiterate people, and I'm willing to pay for it. I'm willing to put my own money. I'm not taxing my neighbors. I'm putting my money. I'm not saying you should, but that's where it is. It's all personal. Life is personal. Politics is personal. Now... Would you rather have people, I, I ask people choices. Would you rather have more government, less government, or just the same amount? Would you rather have people become more self-reliant or more dependent? And great, this is great to ask a mom or dad. When your children grow up, would you like your children to grow up self-reliant or dependent upon the charity of strangers? Which would you rather? But that's the truth. That's the absolute truth. People want for their kids and grandkids what they vote against in the ballot box. And it's important for us to make the connection. And we don't make the connection by telling, but by asking. Wouldn't that be right? So I give people choices. Responsible, irresponsible. Dependent, self-reliant. Okay? Would you like people to be better able to make their... to become better able to make their own decisions or less able? Well, how do you become able to make your own decisions? Don't you become able by making decisions? Now, in a moment, we're going to get to practice these. It's voluntary. You don't have to practice. If you don't want to practice, that's all right. But remember, practice is the royal road to mastery. Every, every, uh, every martial arts master will practice the move thousands and tens of thousands of times. Every boxer will practice thousands of times. Every actor will practice the role hundreds and hundreds of times. Practice makes permanent. Practice makes it part of our second nature. Practice enables us, when we're flustered by some moron that says the most insipid thing we can believe, we're able to draw on this tool and bring it out and say, would you rather that people become more self-reliant or more dependent upon the charity of their neighbors? Which would be better, do you think? And when they say, you know the answer, perhaps I do. But what about you? You want them to answer the question. This is not a way of torturing people. It's a way of helping people. No, I'm, I, look, I, I go there with a clean heart. I go there with an honest heart. I'm not there to beat anybody up. I'm there because I really genuinely want them to think about the issue. Not because I, you know, I'll show you, you stupid dunce, how dare you believe that government stuff. I'm there because I figure 
the only reason they're not in my shoes is they haven't thought about the issues. You know, if God gave you enlightenment and you hoarded it, you were stingy in your soul and you didn't hand it out, I think there's a very, very, very low place in hell for you in a very small cubicle. You don't hoard the good stuff. You give it away. So I keep asking, next question, what is this program doing to people? So making them more self-reliant, more dependent, more responsible, more irresponsible, more thoughtful, more thoughtless and reckless, more self-governing, or more like looters and beggars. What is it turning them into? Not just what are the immediate consequences, but what kind of people is it teaching them to become? What kind of people is it growing them up to be? The worst thing about prisons is not that they're expensive. It's they train people to be criminals. They let them study at the hands of masters. Stand next to the most successful, unsuccessful prisoners you can find. The guys that just barely got caught on the technicality because Johnny Cochran was busy that weekend. Now, we're going to go over some of the questions, and I'm going to ask you the questions, and Caroline Rand and Marshall Fritz are going to help. And I'm going to ask us to break up in groups of two. Two. That's you and one other person. Two. I do not want any intellectual menage a trois because you feel insecure. We are all insecure for different reasons. Me, because I deserve it. You, because you'll grow. What I'd like us to do is take these questions and I'd like us to break into groups of two, and I'd like you to try the questions. Carol Ann and Marshall and I will feed you questions. We will start with... Marshall, Carol Ann, I think we started on... Not 13. You got 11? Or you have 9? 9, 10, 11. What's on, do you have, what, what does your page start on? I gave you three pages. Yes. Yay. <laughs> Self-governors do it responsibly. Ooh. Now. Now, which, which oh, question? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna start we're we're gonna start um, we're gonna start with page ten here. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see, we'll start with section. We'll skip the cursive stuff. Cursive is not swearing. It's a way of writing. <laughs> well, you guys went to public schools. It could happen. We'll start with uh, 10 questions that focus on who decides. Uh, we'll go question number 11, question number 12, question number 13. Marsha, can you take it? We'll take the others. And that's page, which, which is it? Starting at page 10. 10. If people can stand up, stand up. That's on your feet, please. And it's voluntary. So uh, look around and see if anybody is not voluntarily doing it and force them. Now, okay, one of the two questioners, one of the two questioners, your question is, where is page 10? Let's do A and B. Let's call, them, let's call person A and person B. Person A and person B. That'll, that'll be question 11. If a person engages in risky behavior, and give an example if you want to, like um, unprotected sex, who should pay for his insurance, him or someone else? Let that be the A. Y'all decide one. Okay. Okay. Risky sex can be A. If a if a person engages in ri in risky or dangerous behavior, such as unprotected sex, 
who should pay for the insurance? Who should be responsible for the medical care? Him or someone else? Try it with your partner, and then have your partner try it with you. Where? It's voluntary. You don't have to participate. You can just watch if you like. Would you like to try it? Oh, my God, yes. Try it with me. If a person engages in risky behavior, like unprotected sex or riding a motorcycle without a helmet or using drugs, who should pay for his medical bills, him or someone else? Try that with me. Try that with me. Any one of those parts. Engages. Engages in unprotected sex. Who should, who should pay for that? If he hurts himself, who should pay for it? Him or someone else? That's the last part. You or someone else. Very good. That's exactly the right question. What's interesting is your neighbors, when you ask them that question, they know the right answer. Mm -hmm. They know the right. They know the right ethical thing to say. We forget it in politics. That's why we have to keep asking them the questions so they don't forget. Get your point. It's very, uh, it's very good. I think. Well, I, I like. I'll, I'll say. I say. Do y'all have children? Do you have children? Just twelve. If if you're oh my. When your children, as they grow up, do you want them to grow up to be more responsible or less responsible? More responsible. Do you want your children to be thoughtful about what they do and say or thoughtless? Thoughtful. Do you want them to be cautious, think about the consequences? Nice thinking going on here. Ho, 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 wait a minute. I need your, I need your undivided attention. We're going to go to the second question. I want you to change partners. Pretend it's the 70s and you could. The second question is, if a person acts self... Some of you aren't listening. Don't make me hurt you. If a person acts self-destructively, who should be liable for his safety, his health, his medical bills? And the last part of the question is... Very good. Do that with your, a different partner this time. Find someone who you didn't talk to last time. Someone needs part. Someone else. Need a partner? Go ahead. Um, if a person engages in self-destructive behavior that results in, uh, you know, that is for medical bills or what have you, who should be responsible for picking up the cost? The person engages in the behavior or society at large or other people? Say someone else. Instead someone of society else. at large, they might start thinking government, get locked back into status thinking. Or someone else. Someone else. Very good. That's exactly the right way. Um, try turning around like this. Um, if someone wants to go out and ride a motorcycle without a helmet, if someone wants to use drugs and then drive home, or get drunk and drive home at 4 in the morning, who should be responsible for what occurs, him or someone else? And I, what I'm doing is taking the principle and giving another example. And you might want to give different examples. Most people don't think abstractly. You need to go right to the specific. But you got it right. Practice it with someone else. Try at least one more. Um, let's see. <laughs> Try it with Linda once. Linda, what's your listen? Oh, you are you done with yours? Two, test one, two, test. So you saying you don't want three people? That bothers you? No, no, no. I'm just teasing. Okay. It's three people. You start. One person gets to be the coach. Then they don't do their work, and then I have to go back to work. Let's do a third one. All right.
someone didn't teach you, the person who didn't teach you, or someone else? The person who didn't teach me. Okay. That is, that's perfectly reasonable. That can, that can go back to personal accountability. So it's not my fault. Well, in a certain sense, I, I think a lot of this by the time we're adults, yeah. Okay. Ladies and lunch, don't make me turn this car around. I'll do it. Don't you make me. Okay, back to your chairs. Chairs, everybody. Caroline Rand has told me the trains must run on time. Something like that. Yeah, but they're Amtrak. Why would you want them to? Okay. Now, more on time or later? Yes, that's a very, very good question. Now, was pointed out something which you're all going to find, and that's the everybody wants to show you their butt. Yes, they should be more responsible, but... I haven't seen so much butt since those thong bikinis at the beach. Let me make a suggestion. Here's a Michaelism. Yes, I agree, it's better for them to be responsible, but that's an interesting point. Would you rather have more people under more circumstances be more responsible or less people be responsible? Would you rather have more people under more circumstances be more responsible or less people be responsible. Because, see, here's the reality. Suppose a certain number in society are going to be irresponsible twits. Won't think about what they're doing, eat, drink, be married, get drunk, take a ride on the bike, whatever they're going to do. A certain number of people may, in fact, do that. Suppose that 60% of society right now is responsible, thoughtful, self-governing people in their private lives. Suppose uh, 20% are dependents, and another 20% are, are irresponsible, acting with license, not liberty. If we can take out of that 20% who are irresponsible, if we can move 10% over to the responsible side, have we reduced the problem dramatically? 
If we can move people from dependency to self-reliance, if we can move 5% or 10% or just one neighbor, are we better off or worse off? Would you rather have one more person self-reliant or one less? If it saves only one life, if only one person has helped with this program, I have failed dismally. <laughs> but the fact is, society, all of us individually, when we're talking to each other, we may in fact, we may in fact not convince everybody. But what if more people under more circumstances more often act more responsibly? Aren't we better off? And if they're part of the solution, and if they're self-supporting, number one, the amount I have to pay to support them goes down. Number two, they've gone from being overhead to being income. And in any society, a society would be better off to have 90% of the people self-supporting and 10% parasitical than 80% and 20. And the more people we can move over into the self-reliant, self-governing category, the better. And are we more likely to, to have more self-governing people when we teach self-governing, teach self-responsibility, teach self-reliance, or are we going to have less? When society rewards thoughtfulness, prudence, caution, acting with good character rather than penalizing it, are we going to get more of it or less of it? Whatever you reward, you get more of. Whatever you penalize, you get less of. If we're rewarding, encouraging, supporting, nurturing, making the whole social climate supportive, of decency, of individual decisiveness, individual self-reliance, individual responsibility, individual accountability. We are growing. And the more people who join the self-supporting producers and the fewer who are living off us, the further forward our society can progress. But there's a benefit to it. Not only is our overhead less, we've got 10% fewer people living off us. We also have 10% more, more people sharing the burden. But let me tell you a, a consequence you maybe hadn't thought of. Their children learn the lesson, too. You get not only the parents, that 10%, but you get all their children. And you get their friends because people learn their ethical standards from the people they spend time with. We are affected by our peer pressure. That's why it's important to choose good peers. We are affected by the people we spend our time with. That's why it's important to choose wisely. I wanted to end with one question that I like to teach libertarians because I stole it from David Berglund, and we'll give full credit. David didn't... How many of you have his Libertarianism in one lesson? Good book. Everybody ought to have it. If you don't have it, there's probably copies here. Uh, if you can't shoplift one, leave money and pay for it instead. And if you're self-governors, I know you're going to pay for it. Now, he gave something he calls the utopian fallacy. I want to show you a different way of doing the utopian fallacy. Who here knows what the utopian fallacy is? Raise your hand. Who here thinks they can explain it real shortly to the whole group? Please stand up and explain it real quickly to the group. Utopian fallacy is? Is that there is utopia, in fact, Okay. <laughs> and what, what does that entail? Very good. Perfection is what we're judged against. Yes, but you libertarians don't have a perfect society. For example, what if we have three people in a two-person lifeboat, but the lifeboat is owned by the company, and the owner of the company put it in receivership and had a living will, and they're shark-infested waters. One of the persons is a brain surgery, the other people, person's hemophiliac, but kept off the market by the FDA was the drug that would help the hemophiliac. How do you libertarians answer that? 
And that's not too far off from the kind of questions Bill Buckley used to ask. The utopian fallacy, let me turn it around. The utopian fallacy is that the idea that perfection is possible. Now, if I tell you something, you might argue with me. But what if I ask you and you tell me? Are you going to argue with what you tell me? Well, not unless you're schizophrenic. Yes, you will. No, you won't. Yes, you will. No, you won't. But aside from that, well, you could have a party if you're a Sybil, 16 people. Now, utopian fallacy, let me show you how to turn it into a question and make it a powerful question that will lead arguments very, very powerfully. One of the things that will happen is we'll have conversations, we'll ask questions, and then people will go, yes, but what about this exception? What about that exception? What about this exception? What about the one person? What about the person that falls between the cracks? What about this one person? What about this one instance? I'm not arguing liberty means perfection. I'm not arguing that in liberty, all people under all circumstances always consistently, without exception, succeed. If I argue that, how many counterexamples does it take to prove me wrong? One counterexample slaying a brilliant theory. Let me tell you how to do it using David Berglund's utopian fallacy. I ask people the question. I ask the utopian fallacy question with full credit to David because there's a brilliant insight there. And what I do is I ask people this question. It's a run-on question. This is a, this is a really smash-and-grab kind of question. Do you believe it's possible for everyone, under all circumstances, always, without exception, to get exactly what they want and have nothing mess up? Do you think that's possible? Do, do you think utopia is possible, where everything is absolutely perfect for everyone, every minute of the time, with no exceptions? Do you think it's possible to build a society where everything always works and nothing ever blows up and nobody ever has accidents and everything's absolutely perfect? Do you think that's possible? You're, you're, you're right. Get his name. Now, now, when someone says no, all right, now, what I've done is I've strung together, do you think it's always possible under all circumstances? I put all these universal terms. Always possible under all circumstances for all people at all times without exceptions and no mistakes to get exactly what they want. Do you think it's possible to devise an absolutely, totally, completely, notice those words, absolutely, totally, perfect society. Yes, you can get them to have what they want to have. Yeah, yeah. And most people will answer. Then here's your follow-up question. Why not? Why not? Let them give you the utopian fallacy instead of you giving it to them. Why not? Why isn't it possible? Well, there are going to be accidents. Well, any system will miss something. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Once they've agreed, do you believe it's always, do you think it's possible to set up a society where everyone always, under all circumstances, gets exactly what they want and need without exception, a perfect society? Is that possible? Is it possible for anyone to put one together, do you think? And when they say no, ask them, why not? And then sit back and listen, and they will tell you the utopian fallacy. Well, there's always going to be someone who's going to mess up. Someone's going to break the rules. Someone's not going to follow instructions. Someone's going to forget to read the rule book. Someone's going to just have an accident. Some machine will break down. And then you go, oh, okay. Then, here's the follow-up question. You've asked them, is it possible? Then you ask them, why not? Why did you ask them, why not? So they would defend the utopia position. So they would say, utopia ain't possible. And once they've done that, you do Michael's kick-ass, whale and flail, badass question which is, well, if utopia isn't possible, 
If a perfect society isn't possible, notice I'm repeating myself, that's deliberate. Well, if utopia isn't possible, if a perfect world couldn't be built by anybody, how do we determine which society is better than another society? How do we go about figuring out whether this is better or that's better? If utopia isn't possible, if perfection isn't possible, if you can't set up a society where everything always under all circumstances is perfect, then how do we determine which society is better than another? Now, you don't shut up at that point. This is a brief pause point. Then you said, well, for example, would a better society have more prosperity? Would more people be better off? Would more people have more decisions they could make on their Would more people be more self-reliant? Wink, wink, nod, nod. Would more people be more responsible? Would more individuals earn what they get rather than take what they get? Would, would that be a better world? Which kind of society would be better? One with lower taxes? One with higher taxes? One with less government? One with more government? One that encourages more personal responsibility? Or one that encourages less responsibility? Now notice the steps. I gave them the utopia fallacy in the form of a question. What was the second step I had? When they answered, no, it's not possible for utopia. What did I ask them then? Why did I want them to answer, why not? They would defend the position. Now, if they argued for the position, how likely is it that they'll attack it later? That's their baby from now on. You don't have to worry about that question. Oh, well, uh, excuse me, I don't, I'm confused. Didn't you tell me earlier? Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. My mistake. Oh, well, thank you. You know, that was very instructive when you told me that earlier. Thank you for teaching me that. Okay. Why not? Well, if utopia isn't possible, if a perfect world can't be built, where everything always works and everybody always 100% gets of the time get exactly what they want, how do we determine which society is better than another? And the kinds of things they'll come up with is more prosperity, more choice, more civility, more decency, less crime. Gee, the kind of a world that most libertarians would have, isn't it? And then you throw in some questions. Would people be more responsible in this world or less responsible? Would institutions enable them to be more or less responsible? More self-reliant, less self-reliant. More dependent, more independent. Pay their own way or not pay their own way. Now, what happens if I ask them about the utopian fallacy rather than telling them? What have I eliminated? The argument. They won't argue it with me. They will argue it for me. And wouldn't you like other people to carry your water? Wouldn't you like other people to argue your position for you? Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you in a way that I think maybe says it all. If I tell you, you might doubt me. If I tell you, you may argue. If I ask you and you teach me, you'll be my friend. You'll learn by teaching. And I might just learn that questions are the answer. But more importantly, it's time for lunch. And all of the people who are here this weekend, all of these speakers you've got, what are we going to ask them lots of? Ask the, let them all be your teachers. We've got a lot of really smart speakers this weekend and a lot of really interesting people. Make them all be your teachers. Thank you.